Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at icff.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. Hey, before we get started, I wanted to share some resources with you. Since I know you like podcasts about design, if you're not already listening to Revision Path, you should definitely check it out. Revision Path is an award-winning weekly showcase of black designers, developers, and digital creatives from all over the world. Creator Maurice Cherry has been doing Revision Path since 2013, so there is an enormous back catalog of episodes for you to devour. Learn more at revisionpath.com. Black Artists and Designers Guild is a global platform founded by Melanie Barnett, representing a curated collective of independent black artists, makers, and designers across various art and design disciplines who are at the top of their respective fields. Find the directory and learn more about the mission at badguild.info. That's B-A-D-G-U-I-L-D dot info. Black Interior Designers Network, founded by Kimberly Ward, is a nonprofit organization with a focus on creating a rich network and resource for members, clients, suppliers, manufacturers, and the interior design industry at large that showcases the breadth of Black interior designers' creativity, influence, and professional contributions. Go to blackinteriordesignersnetwork.com to learn more. We'll be including these links in the show notes, too. So whether you're looking to hire a new team member, outsource a project, connect, or find inspiration, start there first. Okay, now on with the show. Hey, 
Everybody has their own internal demons and strife and what you have to live with yourself with. And that was something that was important to me. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to interior architect Jamie Bush. Jamie had a magical childhood in New York, with his time spent going between a family of eccentric creatives in Manhattan and dairy farmers on Long Island. He studied architecture at Tulane in New Orleans and then headed west to discover the unsung heroes of mid-century modern residential architecture in Los Angeles. After stints at Marmol Redziner and Kelly Wurstler, he founded his own interior architecture and design firm in 2002 and has since worked on some of the most significant historical residential modernist homes in the U.S. Recognized for his organic modernist sensibility and his ability to blur the lines between architecture and interior design, he's worked with some of the most respected names in the business, racked up tons of press, and is featured on the big lists of top designers and architects. Here's Jamie. My name's Jamie Bush. Uh, I'm an interior designer located in Los Angeles, California, and I've been doing this for around 20 years, and um, it's really just an integral part of who I am and luckily how I get to spend my time. Yes, that does sound like you've carved out a pretty good life for yourself. We always like to learn about our guests and how they got to be the adults they are by going back to their childhood. And I did a little reading up on you, and it sounds like your childhood is just incredible. (laughs) I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so why don't you tell us? Paint the picture for us. You know, when you're in something, you don't really sort of see it as being unusual. And as I've gotten older, I realized I did. I had a magical childhood. My family is from New York. We grew up on Long Island and Manhattan. And I went back and forth between the city and, and sort of a city and country life, but really uh, grew up in this little seafaring town on Long Island on the South Shore called Bayport. And um, half of my family were farmers. They were dairy farmers on Long Island, which farming on Long Island has a rich history. And really, the Hamptons were just filled with farms sort of growing up and why so many people went out there. But we had a dairy farm in East Hampton and in Hotesville. We had a huge vegetable farm and and tractors and trucks and horses and ponies and dogs and rabbits and cats and oh my gosh, wide open spaces, machines and animals. Yeah, <laughs> and amazing. And we really worked on the farm. It was it was a hobby for my father and his inklings. You know, it wasn't his career, so we didn't live on the farm, but we spent a ton of time on the farm, and so that was this bucolic, idyllic life of a child, you know, sort of growing up, growing and making things. And then half of my other family uh, who actually grew up in the farm and moved to the city were in fashion and design and photography and painters and very all creative. So I was sort of surrounded by people that made things, you know, whether growing things or creating things in sort of art and design. And so it was really this magical sort of duality of the sophistication and culture that Manhattan would bring and also being very rooted in in nature and working with your hands and sort of just 
literal hard work. Probably people now would call it child labor. Um, <laughs> but um, it was something that really taught me about makers and people that work with their hands and sort of creating something from nothing. Well, it gives you a real tangible sense of, yeah, something from nothing, which is different than a cognitive or intellectual sense of something from nothing. When you when you actually put your body into it, 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 it informs your your worldview in a way. Oh, completely. And the overlapping of that, because a lot of times these are segregated things as far as um, manual labor and the physicality of actually creating something mm-hmm. versus the uh, sort of more of a highfalutin academic world of, you know, which could be sort of design or the art world. And, you know, we didn't grow up in means necessarily. It was sort of acquired over time with people from their success of whatever endeavors that they were working with. But a lot of my family did both that I have a crazy story. Like I had a great aunt who was a mentor of mine. She was a very famous shoe designer and had like, you know, she has like 250 pairs of shoes in the Met and they had this, they did shoes for everybody in the day and won Cody Awards and all this stuff. But, but she grew up on this farm and they were very jet set in the fifties and had a Rolls Royce and she would drive out in the Rolls Royce from Manhattan. Oh my gosh. Pop the trunk, get a, pitchfork out of the trunk with a potato sack go dig up potatoes and carrots and like weed in the garden like bring vegetables throw it in the back of the truck in the in the rolls and drive into the city Um, so you know and it's like the sort of scrappy these are like you know these jewish intellectuals that it's weird to have also jewish farmers aren't something that you typically think of but they were really these hardworking Jewish, almost like a blue collar family that sort of really worked their way up into these upper echelons of sort of art and design. And that really informed a certain work ethic, but also the interconnectedness of having an idea and then seeing it into fruition, if that makes sense, you know, so it's not just a conceptual thing. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Because you're seeing, you're witnessing before you probably even have the verbal skills to articulate it. You're witnessing people both working hard for fun and for pleasure. So much of what I, I struggle with in today's society is that we're still kind of telling our kids not to pursue creative professions because they're not secure economically. Sure. But if you have a window into that as a child and then you also have a family system that supports it, and there's interconnectedness between what hard work and the tangible fruits of the labor. Like that sounds like it would really help your brain compute how to make something out of that for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. No, it did. And we as kids, we were surrounded by people that just worked. Nobody retired. You die. You basically work and then you die, but you work at things that you're sort of either compelled to do or love to do, hopefully both. But but we were encouraged to sort of create our own jobs, essentially, uh, starting at, I don't know, six or seven. And so like you paint shells and then you sell them on the side of the boardwalk or you would like, I, I seriously would like, catch frogs at the beach and sell them. 
Um, <laughs> and like, you know, and we had farm stands. I used to sort of pick vegetables and put them in a wagon and deliver them door to door and sort of sell them with my friends. And you just make shit up. And it was just a freedom that rather than a prescribed idea of what a job is, it's just, I don't know, if you want something, you want to make some money, you sort of figure it out. Uh, that sort of scrappy attitude, I think, that my whole family had that it gives you a certain amount of freedom that I was never fearful of failing or, you know, something not working or, you know, you just were encouraged to problem solve on your own. You know, mm-hmm. you weren't babied or sort of led to anything because you see all these other people surrounded by you that are just making stuff up as well. Yeah. Um, and now I see that as a very unusual sort of upbringing. But everybody in my family sculpted or, or painted or drew. And a lot of people were just amateurs. Like they did it because it wasn't a career move. It's just something that they like to do. And it was both sides of my family, my mother and my father. Like my my on my mom's side, my grandfather made uh, furniture. And my grandmother was a potter and she painted. And my dad sculpted out of farm machinery and made, you know, animal sculptures. And my sister is a painter and like, my, like it just goes on and on, but like not to any critical acclaim or financial stability. It was just more like you do that. And some people found success and fame with some of it and some didn't, but it was always everybody had their hands in the pot as far as like making stuff, which was quite unusual. Yes. And it sounds like you were living pretty close to the earth too. If you were, if you were catching frogs and selling them and your, (laughs) your aunt was digging up potatoes and throwing them in her Rolls Royce. And how did that imprint on your psyche? Huge. Again, we didn't have uh, tremendous wealth necessarily, but my, you know, besides the farm, we always had a little beach house on Fire Island. My parents bought their beach house for $7,000. It was like, you know, one of these wooden shacks that was just set in nature. And it was just a very wide way. But like as a child being on Fire Island, that you basically hardly wear any clothes and you're, you come home when it's dark out and you're digging up bones in the forest and bleaching them from the year before of the animals that have died there and sort of collecting bones and uh, fishing and again, making things out of nothing, you know, so we would spend summers tie-dyeing clothing and selling that, or we would um, grow things on the island or, you know, so many things. And I was just surrounded by nature and a love of animals and, the seasons and, you know, it was a very unscripted sort of Huck Finn type existence <laughs> that, um, you know, was, you know, truly hugely influential in the way I see design in the world. Like hopefully, you know, some of my work expresses a, a type of sort of organic modernism, something that really is about using natural materials and expressing their irregularities and inherent character with materials and forms but it it was something that it's nothing that i even thought about it's just something that made sense to me as far as an aesthetic and how i sort of see the world and what i want to create yeah there's a a rawness to your sophistication that makes it feel 
organic and of of the earth as opposed to hyper polished and overproduced um thank you you. yeah and so it it feels there's a warmth there i think and there's a a depth that uh really allows somebody to kind of get intimate and connected to it which is powerful i think so much of it like the fortunate few of us that want to channel their childhood uh, that's essentially what i'm doing growing up in these wooden beach houses and my family were always uh gifted in finding interesting real estate so people would live in like literally would build like these amazing tree houses or would have these old old broken down cottages or you know uh, charming shingle style homes or camps in the Adirondacks or you know the, the like magical sort of fairy tale setting type places that they would inhabit some would be falling apart you know in a very <laughs> like world of interiors way and um i always feel that i'm channeling the freedom and the joy that i had as a child through my work and what I would play with and dream of and uh, that sort of raw materiality and a grounded, very almost like base level connection to people making things and a handcraftedness and a um, tangible sense of the handmade mm-hmm. to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And then also – I. I really enjoy contrasting that with something that is hypersaturated in tone or something that is maybe uh, seemingly synthetic but transcendent in its sort of light and space and form. Like, because I think once you learn how to sort of create a language, then I think it's almost irresistible not to contrast that in, in a certain sort of sense. But. Well, and the contrast sort of celebrates both of them a little bit more, right? It does, yeah. yeah. It's, no, it's true because if you're immersed in too much of the same all the time, you don't see its inherent qualities because it sort of – it permeates everything and it's – you're completely surrounded. But it is true. So yeah, by so, highlighting that as a contrast, you do, um, you do get to understand it better, I think. So back to your childhood and now your adolescence, I'm kind of wondering if you had all of this creative outlet and room to sort of run around and make your own path, did you have any angst that you or did you need to rebel at all? It doesn't sound like there was even any sort of box for you to rebel against. (laughs) You know, I didn't. My sister was super rebellious. So I think she took care of both of us. Um, (laughs) But um, Gotta have one of those. (laughs) And Iconoclasts um, and anarchists. Yeah, yeah. She she was um, a little more A-type personality than I was. But I think I didn't rebel necessarily, but I, I, at the end of high school, I realized that I needed to sort of move away because I was closeted and which seemed normal at the time. And, you know, and I didn't have sort of any experience with my sexuality. And I felt like I needed to get out of the Northeast and sort of plant myself in a completely foreign location where I knew nobody so I could sort of deal with that. So that was more of a moment where I had a break from that life that I had previously so I could sort of get my bearings 
And I also, I knew early on that if I stayed in New York, that I would get help from relatives uh, career-wise and, you know, just because of people that you know or connections or whatever. And I had a chip on my shoulder. I, I was really concerned about my own talents or lack of talent and and I needed to sort of prove to myself that I could do it on my own. So I decided to move away because I just I, I knew in a weird sense that if I got help that I would never know if I could have made it on my own. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. 
I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the Talks main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. It sounds like you made a pretty bold choice in order to support an identity that you could feel needed to grow from you, but couldn't in the current environment. Yeah, and and it sounds courageous, but it was more like fear. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was more the, sure. the, the idea, one, is like I needed to like deal with being gay and like what that meant on my own terms to not being surrounded by – anybody that I knew, you know, cause I just, I don't know, I just couldn't deal. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, my family was not homophobic at all. I mean, we have gay friends and gay relatives. It was just my own sort of like neuroses trying to like figure my own stuff out. But mm-hmm. there's some people in my family that have had great sort of critical success in their careers and they had no help everybody gets help at some point, but like, it's more like they did it on their own. They weren't sort of, you know, coming from a wealthy background or had family connections to their industry. It was Mm -hmm. sort of like starting from nothing. And so it just, it felt like what you do. It sounds like that scrappiness is part of your value system and, and you needed to go prove yourself to yourself. Yeah. Before you could fully enmesh yourself with a with a supportive network that you were privileged to have access to. Everybody has their own internal demons and strife and what you have to live with yourself with. And that was something that was important to me because, I don't know, it might not have worked. I might have become, a, you know, an appliance salesman somewhere and been perfectly happy because I realized, like, you know, I wasn't good at what I wanted to do. I, who knows, you know. But you went off to find yourself. Where did you go? For schooling, I went uh, to the South. I went to New Orleans, the school called Tulane. And I was so paranoid of 
getting because I didn't know where I was going to end up. And I literally I applied to 13 colleges just like <laughs> so uh, freaked out because of I was closeted and where I was going to end up. And um, I visited all these places and mostly in the Northeast and whatever. And I got in to Tulane thinking I was going to be an artist. Not that they have a great art school or anything. I But I literally, it was the, after I got my places where I got accepted and denied, I got a map out and I measured on a ruler the farthest distance from my house. <laughs> And and I went there, sight unseen, had no idea what New Orleans was, never been there, thought I would like swim in the Mississippi every day and like, you know, just clueless. And it was the best thing I ever did. Oh, I I feel it. I'm sure. it, It was like, I knew nobody. It was a magical city. The school was great and beautiful and historic and celebratory and I started there. I went to, you know, undergrad and art school, taking art classes. And just by chance, a bunch of my friends were in the architecture school and I used to hang out there and it just clicked, you know. And and earlier on, my mother was like, you know, you're good at math. You're creative. Why don't you look at architecture? And I was like, that's ridiculous. Like, you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> like, that's Parents. a terrible idea. <laughs> Makes no sense. And then, of course, I just – it was like I found myself. Honestly, I just was like my eyes – something just clicked. You know, My eyes just grew, and I started hanging out there, and all of a sudden, it just made sense. And so I transferred and then just ate it up. It was just uh, – they have a really good architecture school. And I did my undergrad and my grad. I got my graduate degree in architecture, and um, it was just – you know, luck. Honestly, it was luck that I, you know, landed there and being in this sort of beautiful and relevant historical environment that New Orleans is with like such a history of. Uh, it's so inc- rich. And a, they call it a genus loci, like the this very specific place on earth with its physical environment and historical nature and the the urban fabric that was built around that was just an incredible laboratory to sort of study design and architecture in and and the school was it's a modernist school it's not you know this is historical sort of based design school but that contrast just gave such an incredible sort of foundation to sort of work in. And it was incredibly fun. I mean, it was just, uh, it was a very rigorous school, but then to have the outlet of the city itself was yeah. uh, brilliant. I mean, Oh man, I want to be there. I want to be your friend. Childhood, just, college, all of it. <laughs> what, what's I'll buy amazing. a frog. <laughs> <laughs> but what's amazing is that fast forward to now, I was so fortunate to be sort of asked to be on the board of the school. So now I'm on the, the board of regents on the university. And so I go down there several times a year for board meetings that always correspond with jazz fest or. Oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) Isn't it nice to to be continually embraced by institution that also fostered such growth in yourself? Huge. It's huge. You know, this year I lecture down there and it's just a full circle. I mean, it's a, a, it's a homecoming to me and I feel so strongly connected to not only the city, but the school itself. And, 
and then also to, you know, I've hired people from the school since, you know, I have people who were students there that are now in my office and um, it is giving back, but it also just sort of, I feel like gives to me because I, you again, get to experience that time of your life and be reminded of, you know, what it felt to be down there. And, you know, it, it was really uh, such a fortunate time of my life and the background and all of that sort of um, taught me so much about not only who I am, but like this sort of freedom again to sort of create in such a rigorous manner, you know, this architecture school, architecture schools are tough, you mm-hmm, know, the, mm-hmm you know, three quarters of the school doesn't make it, you know, mm-hmm. so your graduating class gets very uh, boiled down to, you know, just a few. And um, yeah, it really informed my practice hugely. So I have to ask a couple sort of major and obvious questions. Did you also find yourself sexually? Like, were you able, were you comforted and safe enough to come out? Well, at first I joined, you know, because I was totally closeted. Mm -hmm. I joined a fraternity because I just didn't even know what to deal with. This like lady killer fraternity (laughs) on campus. And it was the perfect guys for me just to not even, you know, have to deal with it except these guys were just total hunks that were just on a conquest. So you would have to like report your like weekly antics at the, at the, at the sort of fraternity sort of Sunday evening dinners. And I was just the token stoner. I would always be like in a tie-dye t-shirt and sort of people would just easily pass over me. So I wouldn't really have to, to deal. <laughs> um, that had a short sort of lifespan. And then I eventually like deactivated from that and and hence met a bunch of gay guys from that fraternity afterwards like that were closeted too. But, <laughs> um, but New Orleans was like overload. I mean, because everything's decadent down there. So like – the university provided this great shelter, mm-hmm. but once you ventured out, I mean, it was like, it was an amazing place to come out because it was super fun and there was no like shame in any of it. And it was, you know, straight or gay. So many people are like sexually over the top and like just letting it all hang out. So it was a really uh, liberating place to sort of just find yourself and, um, yeah, liberating, you know, and, no shame in any of it. That that no. all sounds like ideal conditions. Yeah, and and there were so many more extremes than you. Yeah, you, know, <laughs> you like, weren't going to stand out. No, <laughs> no, no, no. My friend, I had this lesbian friend who sort of went back and forth, and she would hang out at this bar called the Double Play. So it's basically for transsexuals that sort of flip both ways. So like that was when you like are, are like surrounded by like every walk of life you know you just sort of blend in it's like what you're dealing with is so no big deal which (laughs) is um which was really comforting and also like you know it just never became an issue so well the other question i have to ask is contextually when when were you there what was your time in college i went the late 80s so i went from 87 to 93. So I was there six years. Yeah. So well before Hurricane Katrina. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure broke your heart on a number of levels. Yeah. You know, I mean, 
look, it was just a mess. And mm-hmm. a lot of my friends never left, you know, so people, you know, lived down there full time. And, you know, if this was Boston or Philadelphia, some sort of, you know, centralized city that was more sort of connected to the rest of the U.S., mm-hmm. it would have been a very different reaction. But things were still fucked up. 10 years later, you know, and Mm -hmm. still are. It was a mess to begin with before (laughs) Katrina, you know. Government was corrupt. City streets were like riddled with potholes. You know, there were so many things that never worked about New Orleans. And that was part of its charm. Mm -hmm. You know, you get these cities that are really well run and get all gentrified. And a lot of the character is sort of taken away. That never happened to New Orleans. No, it's so So rich in flavor. (laughs) And, you know, so it was screwed up to begin with. But then Katrina just exasperated everything so much and the recovery you know i went down soon after katrina and you know i I would always go down i would always spend time and you know it was rough Mm -hmm. you know for so many people for so long and the cities it's come back to a level playing field of more of where it was i guess if that's what you call level playing field but it's still floods, you know, still of these pumping stations don't work. I mean, there's still so many problems with it, even after the Army Corps of Engineers got involved. I mean, so many things, it's still screwed up. So it's sort of a laissez-faire attitude. People are just used to things not working, you know, in the big (laughs) scheme of things. So, Well, it's also a place where, I mean, this is, I'm I'm not close enough to New Orleans to really comment but it from a distance it seems to me like it's a place where nature is still really winning like it's yeah yeah and and there's a beauty in that too because your man is sort of consistently in opposition and in harmony with nature there it's subtropical so like wood rots constantly you know we i lived in this house where we lived upstairs and we had this couple that lived below us named Mildred and Topcat. I would come home from school and the whole front yard would be on fire because there'd be these ant piles that would be towering and they'd fill them with gasoline and light them <laughs> on fire and sit in the rocking chair and like listen to them pop. And it's just <laughs> – but you're like invaded by really this like relentless nature there where everything is overgrown and sort of – insects and plants will just destroy a house Mm -hmm. and um and the floods and you know it's it's very much part of it plus things are allowed to grow old you know i live in los angeles where like they'll quote unquote trim a tree and it's basically a stub you know they like annihilate anything that actually will have an age or a patina or be allowed to sort of mature and like there you're surrounded by you know 100 year old oak trees and just overgrown vegetation that's so romantic and damaging and yeah um, and powerful and, and it is you know it, and it sexy is. and yeah it, wild. It's all of that. but you just have to give into it i mean it's like <laughs> Oh, you're you know, not going to win. Nature will no, always win. <laughs> it, it will, yeah. So back to you. You were there from 87 to 93. It, mm-hmm. Eventually, we all have to graduate and leave school and step into the professional world. What did that transition look like for you? Where'd you go? What were your first few jobs? How did it feel? 
I went home. I went back to New York, and it was winter. Ew. And I was doing some manual labor. I was literally digging a septic tank on a property um, that I was <laughs> managing. It, I was just miserable. It was just like I didn't want to be there, and uh, it was freezing, and I just realized I needed to sort of look elsewhere. And um, a friend of mine, this artist who I grew up with on Fire Island, this girl that I've known since I was four years old, she was in L.A., and I didn't really know about L.A. and what it was, but I studied a lot of modernist architecture in, in college. And um, Manhattan, for me, you know, you would really be doing interiors. And this is when I, you know, I graduated with an architecture degree and I was interested in building. At the same time, there was a previous graduate named Bob Hale. He ran Frank Gehry's office for years and he just went on his own. He was a graduate and just starting out and he tentatively offered me, you know, a job. Mm -hmm. I don't even know how it came out, but got wind. I was maybe moving out there. So I just picked up and with an old roommate of mine or a friend from architecture school, I just moved out to LA thinking I'd be there for a year or two and try it out. I didn't have a job yet. And it was great. I moved to Silver Lake. All my friends were living in like Schindler apartments and Neutra houses. Mm -hmm. It was super cheap. Mm -hmm. You know, this is 25 years ago. So yeah, this would be like LA the, the like, mid-90s. Yeah, this was like 94. Yeah, Literally, yeah. I moved out a week before the Northridge earthquake. <laughs> so we literally like had a little place in Silver Lake. And then, you know, within the week, the earthquake hit and our place was like wrecked. And, you know, we were freaking out because we just thought this is how it is. <laughs> yeah. You know, you just, this is like nor normal life in LA. And that was a really strange sort of welcoming because like freeway overpass collapsed and like traffic was weird. Everybody was like up on end. But all that said, I mean, it was a really great time for me because Silver Lake at the time, there were just artists and architects and it was like very gay at the time, but like leather daddies. It was super Latino and sort of rough, mm -hmm. you know. And, I know the Silver Lake, yeah. Yeah, it's a long time ago mm -hmm. and really fun. And uh, and it opened my eyes. Like I just experienced all of this modernist architecture that was very much in tune with my sensibility of like simple buildings made of wood and steel and very much sort of indoor-outdoor living. That's such a cliche now, but at the time – a lot of these sort of modernists were not either known very well or reveled in. So like when you're an architecture nerd or an artist, you know, these are the people that lived in these homes or maybe you're an academic. Mm -hmm. For the most part, nobody knew Schindler's name or Lautner, maybe Neutra if you're sort of like an art curator somewhere. But and they were cheap. I became sort of a picker. I used to go to flea markets and sort of buy furniture and go to these stores that were selling some mid-century stuff and selling stuff once in a while and hanging out there. I got a job with Bob Hale knowing nothing. I, I just, you know, was useless as a kid and just sort of starting to work with him. And then I ended up over time working for some 
different architects. I worked for this firm, Marmalade Zener, mm-hmm. for a, a well-known firm at the time. And they, when I was hired, they were just uh, finishing up Neutra's Kaufman House in Palm Springs, which is sort of his um, most famous sort of home that he created. And that was sort of a big deal. These sort of homes were just really being sort of valued and preserved and considered relevant and to look at. So I worked for Marler and Zener, and I worked for a couple of other architects. And then I ended up uh, starting my own firm with two guys from Marler and Zener, an architecture firm. So we had a little firm called Type 4. We would like buy and sell houses and move into the garage and physically like remodel them or do additions. And then we had some our clients of our own, but we were just, again, super scrappy, making stuff up and sort of moved to the West side and uh, sort of flipped places and did everything wrong you could possibly imagine running a business, like having <laughs> no idea how to do any of it. That's the best way to learn how to do things right, because it hurts yeah. when you do it wrong. <laughs> no, you know, like we had to figure it out and the stakes were low, you know, it was still cheap and we were, you know, just making it up. Then I ended up befriending a woman who my boyfriend at the time was teaching her kids piano lessons. And she was a client of Kelly Wurstler's. Mm-hmm. And I went to a birthday party for her and Kelly was there and we met. I actually like wrapped her present in this like chinoiserie wallpaper. And Kelly's like, is that wallpaper? <laughs> and... um. And then we sort of became friendly and one thing led to another and I, I got a job there. I realized like I didn't want to do architecture anymore. I, I tried a stint at doing interiors by myself for one job, which turned out well, but I realized I didn't really know what it was doing. Okay. And then I worked for Kelly for about a year and that was amazing. That was such a great experience. So that's going to be the late 90s that you worked for Kelly? It was before 9-11. It was probably 2000, and I worked on what was then called the Estrella. So that was a hotel that in became Palm the Viceroy. Palm Springs, yes. yeah. That was my project. I got married I there. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. my God. That's so crazy. That's so funny. <laughs> and so simultaneously, I was doing that project, and then Trina Turk's uh, her shop in Palm Springs as well. So oh, those okay. were my jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I feel even more connected to you now. <laughs> that's so funny. Yes. Yeah, so we did that hotel for like – Twelve dollars, um, you know that was such <laughs> yeah. a shoestring budget. We literally would like, you know, we needed artwork, so Kelly and I would paint paintings on the plaster walls, and then get molding and then frame it directly on the wall with like, you know, door casing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, you know, I mean, it was just sort of made up. I visited it several times while it was under construction. It made me feel really connected to the property because I could kind of see it as it was coming together and mm-hmm. respond to the choices that were being made. And it was, it was pretty special. That's so funny. She really opened my eyes to like somebody who was completely fearless and also scrappy. I mean, Kelly has this sort of aura about her now because she's, you know, a world famous character that she's sort of um, untouchable and above it all. And she was so scrappy and super hands on. 
And again, just sort of somebody that just made things up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I so respected that. And she created a magical world where she had a bungalow at the time that was her office that was just this dreamland, like like other characters have created before, like Tony Duquette or, you know, these sort of fantasy environments that are completely immersive in a sensibility. Mm-hmm. She really sort of taught me about that, sort of making your own pathway to sort of how you want to spend your time and what you want to create and and also being multidisciplinary, you know, because mm-hmm. some of what she did, she would obviously use vintage, but then sort of make up new things and design things and design fabrics and rugs and, you know, and what have you and still like a lot of these budgets that we were working with at the time were like nothing. So you would just have to be super creative to sort of make the impact that you were looking for. But that was incredibly informative and uh, influential for me. Uh, um, I still, you know, really value that time so much. And nice. And I cut it short because we ended up buying a house in Venice that was a total fixer. And I realized I couldn't stay there and work on the house at the same time. So I really left before I probably should have career-wise because I still needed to learn so much just about the business. But I sort of didn't have a choice. I just I, – we ended up buying this place. I had to redo it. So I, I just ended up having to leave. And that's really what started me starting my own business. Oh, interesting. It was definitely out of personal necessity. And then you just – sort of went from your home project into projects for other people under your own yeah. name. Mm-hmm. Yep. Again, looking back, it was just a amazing happenstance to sort of what ended up transpiring. But we bought this tiny little duplex in Venice that was still like rough and tumble. It was like the cheapest thing that we could afford and tiny, you know, each side was like a thousand square feet, but we remodeled it. And I did it in this sort of crazy over the top way it was like Liberace's beach house it was like <laughs> super like you know right off the heels of kelly and it was uh, uh you know marble floors and lacquered surfaces and all of this retro sort of hardware but it was this fantasy little beach house thing and my partner at the time was a piano teacher to these sort of wealthy west side families and they would come to our house and hang out and be with the kids and take piano lessons and they'd see the house and then inevitably they would hire me to work on their homes and it was just this sort of byproduct that was never like planned it was just sort of a really sort of fortunate sort of way of meeting people and getting work and mm-hmm. it and, and it worked yeah. and um and that's really sort of what enabled me to sort of get clients and meet people and start my practice so not quite 20 years into it you've been doing it for a while now and you've got some impressive projects under your belt do you want to tell me and our listeners about one of your favorites Maybe also tell us why it's so dear to your heart. You know, the physical outcome of places, clearly I have favorites, but there's also, you know, an emotional or or challenging outcome to a lot of these things. And, you know, but, but I will say, you know, off the top of my head, uh, one that 
was a huge turning point for me was this house called the Butterfly House uh, in Carmel that um, was this historic mid-century, really small house. It's less than 3,000 square feet, small in comparison to you know projects that we're working on now. Mm-hmm. By Originally designed by this architect named Frank Wincoop in 1951 for himself and his family. And it's this total fetish object of a house. You know, the, the roof looks like a wingspan or open butterfly wings and jutting out in this rocky outcropping into the Pacific and this devastating coastline. I mean, it, it was just um, a dream project. And this uh, this couple from London was uh, looking to move to the States. And the wife, Hannah, like so many outsiders, looked at Carmel as being just this um, dream place in California, which is what it is. And sometimes it does take an outsider to really appreciate it's sort of what is there. And she found this house and she determined to, to uproot her entire family, move them from London two little kids and recreate her life there because she was so taken by the scenery and the nature and the sort of connectedness to the earth and sort of a very healthy lifestyle that she really wasn't finding in in London. Mm -hmm. And then we embarked on this three-year journey that was definitely wrought with challenges and it was tumultuous because we this house that was redone previously was just sanitized it looked like a condo in boca mm. everything was like you know drywall and a hundred thousand can lights and uh. you know, polished limestone floors and you know just it was remodeled to sell you know to the lowest common denominator yeah. and and devoid of all of the sort of original character of the building, but the structure itself was intact. And so it looked at lots of people and we ended up, uh, you know, I fell hard and we did everything we could to get this job. I ended up sort of designing the entire house pretty much before we got the job. Mm. We ended up making this sort of inspiration lookbook that I had bound in this sort of handmade linen box. I hired a graphic designer to make a logo of the house and have it embossed. I had letterhead printed with the logo of the house with a handwritten note, you know, sent the whole thing to London. You know, I needed to get this house. (laughs) (laughs) I did everything I could to seduce them into this vision. I was going to say, it sounds like a courtship is definitely a seduction. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, because I knew what I wanted to do to it and it um, and it worked and they hired me. And what we thought was going to be a relatively straightforward remodel ended up really becoming a three-year endeavor that was very difficult, you know, because I didn't realize it was so expensive to do work up there, Mm. quality work. I thought for some reason, because it was a smaller town, it would be less expensive than LA. And it proved to be the opposite. Because Because there's not as much supply? Not as much supply or talent. Yep. And we ended up really crafting that entire house. That entire house was made of teak and stone and plaster. We hand-molded bricks. We, like, everything was sort of made by hand. 
I mean, the, the woodworking alone, it's built like a ship, you know, and the stone floors go indoor and outdoor. These like sort of quartzite flagstone doors we like hand cast uh, bronze hardware. Like everything was sort of made of, you know, cork and horn and bronze and brick and stone and plaster. And mm-hmm. like a, it, it's all about materiality and, mm-hmm. and to do that well – cost a fortune and it's not off the shelf stuff you can't no. yeah and it and because there was such little storage in the house everything was sort of again made like a ship so every little nook and cranny had to be studied and maximized for for its you know function and um and then there were structural issues there were like columns that were being eroded by the by the sea mm-hmm. uh by uh, uh, the salt of the sea, and so we had a, we had to undermine the foundation and jack up the house, and we had to. Uh, everything was an endeavor, and um, the amazing thing about this is that we came out of it, and they love it, mm. you know. And so it's really we're doing some work on it right now because the kids are getting older, and so we're remodeling some of the bedrooms now because they can't fit in the beds anymore, and. But coming back to a project after really having, you know, sleepless nights and, and, you know, countless problems and then coming back to it and having clients like love the house and revisiting and spending time there again is really sort of incredibly rewarding. I love this story. And I also think in society, in this podcast, we've talked to so many people whose the houses that they grew up in imprinted on their psyches in such powerful and meaningful ways that it they went out into the world and felt like they needed to contribute to to the building of the world in some way and if we don't celebrate that if we don't acknowledge it if we do like you said sanitize everything in these sort of generic boxes how can we possibly have an appreciation for that the fact that they allowed me to sort of reinterpret what i think Frank Wincoop, the original architect's vision could have been, mm-hmm. you know, I, I look back and I think that he would have approved of this um, interpretation to this house that he designed. And the fact that they allowed me to do it was um, something that it just becomes a part of you, you know, because yeah. when you're entrusted with somebody's um, time and treasure, you know, it becomes very personal, you yeah. know, and it might not work. You know, that's the thing. All of this stuff is a risk. Luckily, this one, this one did. Yes. And they're still in it, which is which is meaningful and kind of magical, too. It's a long term relationship. It's not yeah. just um, a project to sort of turn it around and make a profit, which is a different, no. different kind of vibe for sure. Interpreting Frank Wincoop's original intentions, was that part of the process that you enjoyed? You know, there wasn't a lot of documentation about, you know, we didn't have the original drawings of the house. And, you know, at that time, this was a relatively modest house, even though it was dramatic in its setting and its expression of a building. You know, this was not made with high quality sort of finishes. Mm -hmm. It's just not really what was done at the time with these homes were sort of built unless you had, you know, a really good budget. So he built the thing for $30,000, we found out. Oh, um, wow. Which, well, you know, that's in 1951 dollars, but at the same time, it wasn't 
some astronomical number of finishes. So what what my intention was was to channel what he might have done if he had a bigger budget. Um, so these sort of rough cut sort of quartzite flagstone floors that run throughout the house, it really takes its clue off of the rocky outcropping that literally the house is perched on. Mm. Um, so it looks like these stones are sort of it's sort of sitting on this stone bed, essentially, that was just sort of dug up from the earth. And all of the wood detailing was completely added. You know, none of that was there. It was all drywall. So I think there was wood on the exterior eaves. And so we took that clue with these full height windows to bring that wood inside the house as well to sort of blur that interior exterior vision. So all of this was sort of interpreting a language that had an indication of wanting to be there, but sort of carrying it through to its, I think, full potential. It sounds to me like your direct connection with the earth and with materials that come from the earth and your agility with being able to translate them from raw organic material into building materials and design elements might be one of your superpowers. Would would you would you say that's one of the things that maybe sets you apart? I think, you know, first of all, having an architectural background and practicing architecture has definitely informed our practice because half of what we do is interior architecture. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we'll, you know, we don't build from the ground up. Maybe one day I'll have that sort of appetite. But uh, one of our strong suits is creating either an envelope or the palette and um, language of of the house through materiality that sets the tone for the interiors. You know, most projects that we work on, we work on the interior architecture. Just It's just what we do. So, mm-hmm. and we, everybody knows how to do construction documents and detailing and overseeing construction. So we're not, you know, decorating per se, we're really sort of building interior architecture. And so I, I think we're very good at, problem solving and sort of analyzing existing structures and what potential they have. Um, And we get along well with architects because we know the rigor of the practice. And so, you know, we, we create the same documents that their office will create or very similar and, and coordinate, you know, we know how to play the game as far as, working with contractors and getting things done and built. And you can design so that it can be built. Or, and if you know how it can be built and they don't, you can communicate in the same language. Yeah. So, so you know, it levels the playing field as far as the rigor of our practice. And I think it helps um, elevate our interiors because once in a while we'll furnish a place that we're not involved with construction, but most most of our projects were involved with some type of construction. Um, if not, you know, uh, all of it. And sometimes we run the projects. You know, we're mm-hmm. we're the architect as well. It just depends. But yeah, it's really fortunate that we have not just my background, but we have great people in the office that have, you know, a ton of experience running, you know, big projects and commercial jobs, and and really. Are more talented than I am with detailing and executing sort of uh, really complex things. We just finished a job 
in Tahoe where, you know, we designed every single piece of hardware in this 14,000 square foot house. So, and we designed them, we had them cast and fabricated and milled and complex hardware. This wasn't sort of just a bunch of doorknobs and hinges, you know, and when we're able to go to that extra extent of really informing a design language that permeates through an entire building to that detail, it really, it's a rarity and it's a luxury that we're, we're, able to be you know involved with with some of our projects and but it makes a difference it makes it very personal and special for the for the homeowner and it's more of a sort of complete piece of art versus just um shopping for you know everything Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. makes me wonder if we were to open your skull and look at your brain or if your brain was like a warehouse what does it look like inside? I, I'm asking because I kind of want to know how you organize your thoughts. Is it is it a scramble? Is it a is it a piles <laughs> of like um, information and tidbits all organized and filed away pretty Ugh. systematically? What does it look no, like? No, <laughs> it, it'll look like some random warehouse sale that like is just picked over and with with piles in every corner. <laughs> <laughs> There's a Rolls um, Royce with shoes. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> There's a corner full of frogs. <laughs> you know, I, I'm very good at multitasking, but I, I think that having a somewhat mathematical inclination, like I, I have a um, a fairly organized, systematic way of sort of doing projects, and and I have an analytical sort of approach to things. But uh, on the creative side, I um, I'm all over the place because I might, you know, a, a project may start from a photograph that I see that has this amazing chartreuse color, and and it's sort of like it, it sets something off, and then a room becomes sort of like immersed in that sort of tone of uh, of that from that photograph. But it's. Uh, I, I don't know. I think I find my process very, it, it's not a linear process. Mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the practice forces it to be, which I like because it forces your hand to make decisions and then move on. Yeah. So that, that helps me sort of have to stop and commit. But I know well enough getting older that once you commit to something, it's never the right answer. It's one of the right answers, and then other answers will follow in its pathways. So, oh, that's um, that's a beautiful way to look at it. Yeah, and it helps you get over any sort of perfectionism because there's not yeah. one right answer ever. Left to my own devices, I'll never decide on anything. So, <laughs> I, it, it, I'm sort of relieved to hear done. that. <laughs> yeah, nothing will get done. It'll be like in constant flux, but again, the practice and deadlines and my staff and you know, uh, us as an office, you're constantly having to make decisions and move on and usually uh, working long enough on these things, your gut instincts are typically um, a solid enough sort of way forward to sort of like move that chess piece. Mm -hmm. And um, to answer your first question, I have no idea the inside of my brain looks like I'm just scared to even sort of look at that. I think, I it's think just it looks a, like a, a humble jumble. Fabulous <laughs> estate sale. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. <laughs> so 
you mentioned, you know, your your adolescence transition to college. You you had to go find yourself essentially because you needed to make sure for yourself that you could make it on your own without help. And you also needed to get comfortable with your identity and your sexual identity. And it sounds like you've done that successfully. Are are you feeling good and solid inside and you know, after having made your way in this world, I wonder what, if any, are the insecurities or moments of disconnection you might feel at this stage in life? I feel very sort of secure and at peace with myself and having sort of been able to do a lot of things that I set out to do and feel super fortunate to have the success I've had now, you know, I just turned 50. So at that point, uh, like so many of us, I think, you know, you're on this sort of train and everything's going well. And the thing that you sort of crave is time Mm -hmm. to actually one, enjoy what you've created which um, is always a challenge for me to sort of like uh, be able to sit with something for a while, which doesn't seem to happen often. And also trying to figure out that balance between moving forward and stopping still. (laughs) So, you know, that now that we have a firm, you know, we have 15 people in our office and it's a, it's a family of people that I really care about and that, really support me and and our clients and to sort of to feed that environment you know creatively but also financially you know is there's that constant struggle of you know constantly looking for the new and the next and bringing work in while also being able to spend an excess of time on the projects that we currently have because as I'm sure you know, these things, nobody works normal hours in our office, you know, mm-hmm. like usually people are there till eight o'clock at night or nine o'clock or 10 o'clock, myself included. Everything, things that you care about, it just takes time, mm-hmm. you know, and it might be the simplest thing. It might be, you know, you're figuring out some like coordinating pillow fabric on, you know, this sort of guest room apartment sort of headboard. And it takes three weeks, you know, and it's just like you scrutinize it and go over it. And so it's that balance of like being able to spend enough time on the things that you need to work on and always sort of looking to the next. And that that's a constant challenge because I I would prefer to be a little bit more of a dreamer and design and take a nap and (laughs) but it just you know and it's and it's a fortunate position you know we we have some amazing projects that we're working on and yeah um, it's good problems but it's also like how do you take care of your humanity so you can keep doing it yeah well and to you know how do you have a life as well you know and Mm -hmm. exercise and make time for yourself and your family, you know, and I think that's a struggle we all have and uh, um, myself included. And it's, it is a good problem and I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It would be nice to sort of stop, stop the clock for a minute. Yeah. Well, you mentioned being a dreamer. Are there any 
dreams on the horizon that you're chasing after still? Well, we bought a place for ourselves. Um, that's an amazing old 1930s Spanish house that's in complete disrepair that will one day call home. That's really exciting. I, I never thought I'd sort of live in a in a real house in Los Angeles myself. You know, it's something that you do for other people. So that's <laughs> something that's um, that's really sort of exciting for for us and yeah. to plant trees and so that's great and then you know i i would love to make more product and furnishings and sort of have more time for my artwork and have a show or two and make a book and you know there's lots of things that i i still want to do for sure and you know and it's something where i don't think i'll ever retire or stop you know, unless I'm forced to by health or or extraneous circumstances. But I um I don't know. I think there's there's so much more to do and fortunately, you know, we're able to have the opportunities to do a lot of these things. So yeah. I feel very fortunate. Do you have a project that you can talk about that's either recent or upcoming that you want our listeners to be able to check out? We just finished an apartment in Manhattan in this big tower in lower Manhattan that has extraordinary views that we uh, that just got published and um, and we were finishing this amazing house in on the lake on four acres in Nevada on Lake Tahoe that we're about to shoot that's um, this uh, sort of brutalist modernist structure that's filled with um, natural materials, but also saturated color sort of against them. So there's like mm. tons of sort of jewel tones among sort of this you know, super organic landscape of the lake and the mountains. So that's that's coming out. And we're just finishing up this other house that's completely different. It's a huge, like a 20,000 square foot house in Mandible Canyon on top of this hillside that's all super muted it's all limestone and uh washed out cedar and pale plaster and steel it's almost this sort of modernist farmhouse uh with this arctic noah walker that's um everything is supernatural and woven lots of woven materials and uh pale pale finishes with contemporary and sort of uh, uh period sort of furnishings but super serene and huge open spaces and so almost almost like a grand modernist country house wow it sounds beautiful and i just want to say as another creative project that i think you should do is i think you have a voice for radio and you have the language (laughs) that is just taking me there and it's serene Mm. and jewel tones and i want you to make (laughs) A podcast that just describes <laughs> these these <laughs> sensual places that's meant to lull you into dreamland. I, right. I think I think <laughs> that's you. your next big ticket. <laughs> right, right, right. That's so funny. But yeah, we we we're fortunate. We like we have a lot of projects and some that are intimate and that are um, on the smaller scale, but sort of magical. And uh, I'll just leave you. We're, we're doing this 1950s sort of restoration reimagining of a Pierre Koenig sort of case study house that has a paper fold roof in Rancho Palos Verdes that overlooks the ocean. That's just this like 
beautiful folly of a of a of a space and wow and that's really filled with select uh patinaed um sort of rarefied objects and furnishings in a very sort of casual california sort of uh, sensibility but with a smaller house like this you can really sort of be incredibly edited and almost fetishizing these sort of uh, these pieces as objects and and objectifying these uh, sort of works of art that are sort of functional and prized as sort of design at this point. So that's been a, a pleasure, you know, and it's a secondary house for somebody, this family from D.C. So it's they get to actually have it less functional than it typically would need to be which is sort of a treat oh that is a treat you know? nice. Yeah. nice yeah well it so. sounds like you've got a lot of magic in your life still and um it makes me feel like i want to go out there and grab some more magic for myself so <laughs> thank you for inspiring us with your story mm-hmm. no thank you for having me this has been a pleasure Thanks for listening. To see images of Jamie's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you would, please do us a favor and give us a rating and a review. It really helps us out. We love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.